0: Stars in the sky, birds that flutter and fly. I'm thankful, thankful for the leaves on the trees, how they dance in the breeze. I am Show gratefulness and thankfulness As we praise the Lord of all Alleluia Alleluia I am thankful For the bright shining That he lived and the love that he gives, I am thankful. Thankful with an attitude of gratitude for blessings big and small. I'll show gratefulness and thankfulness as we pray.
1: Amen. I hope and pray you're thankful too. I know it's something we have to, sadly enough, many have to work at that. We've become so entitled in our world where we think we deserve so much and we don't get exactly what we want. Sometimes we get an attitude of anything but gratitude. <laughs> so we thank the Lord for what He has done, don't we? Well, let's go ahead and uh, I'm not going to have you turn to a passage. I want to just. Um, Begin by saying for the last year or so, we've been spending time in our Bible Truth series. And uh, we've addressed topics like dispensations and the Jews, the work of the Spirit, the Gentiles, Christ in prophecy. And and in our latest uh, lessons were New Testament mysteries. Those are just a few of the topics we've addressed and touched on over these last months and year even. And tonight I want to kick off another installment of our series. I want to call it The Judgments. The judgments. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to consider five different judgments spoken of in the Bible. We're going to place them where they belong in God's timeline. We're going to address some doctrinal significance to each of them. And um, again, these particular judgments differ in so many different ways. And we're going to note some of those differences. And what we're going to learn along the way is that Scripture speaks of a couple different uh, judgments, obviously. One judgment is being in the air another one being on the earth, and another one being up in heaven. We're going to make sure that uh, these particular judgments are distinguished because, you know, it's easy sometimes to fall into the trap of believing that maybe there's just one final judgment, but really there are a number of them. There's the judgment seat of Christ, there's the throne of glory, there's the great white throne judgment. And so we're going to look at some of those differences and we're going to try to make sense of them. And so five separate judgments that we're going to look at over the course of the next few weeks. And so I want to begin by touching on judgment number 1 or the one we're going to start with. And we're going to note that the subjects are believers. You and I, if you know Christ is your savior, it's going to it affects you. This judgment affected you. And it affects you as to sin. Uh, the judgment that took place in AD 30, a place called Calvary, you might remember it. You've read about it, I'm sure. The basis of the judgment is Christ's finished work. and The result is going to be the death of Jesus Christ, but also the justification of the believer. And so we're going to recognize that this judgment is past. It's something that took place in the past, and yet it has present ramifications for you and I today. And so as we begin, we're going to note Or turn to some Bible passages to start with that point out the results of this particular judgment. What transpired, what took place as a result of this judgment? We'll start there and then we'll continue through as we address and deal with judgment number one here uh, that took place at Calvary. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time together and for these that have gathered. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be stirred and encouraged and inspired from the word of God. Lord, teach us something, and Lord, may we know more than we did before we came. May we say as the psalmist did, it was good when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now, Father, I pray that you would once again fill me with your spirit. I can't do this without you, and I pray that you would again anoint every listening ear. Father, we we desperately need you. Without you, we can do nothing. So, Lord, we cry out to you now and ask that you would just meet our every need as we seek to glean and grow from your precious book, the Word of God. We'll thank you in Christ's name, amen. So I want you to begin by turning to Romans chapter 10, verse 4. As we turn to this Bible passage, it's going to point out one of the results of this judgment. And again, it took place back there in 30 AD, basically, right there at Calvary on the cross. Of course, we know that Jesus Christ laid his life down. He willingly gave his life. A judgment took place that day. And that's what we need to understand. And again, that basis of that judgment was the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if, although Jesus died, let me say this, his death brought justification to you and I, the believer. And that's a blessing. Notice here in Romans ten four, what it accomplished. The Bible says, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone that believeth." It. What it's basically saying is that the law no longer has power over you and I. We know that in the Old Testament they had to keep a set of rules and regulations, if you will. We understood that they were condemned under the law, if you will. But this says the passage teaches us in Romans 10:4, "For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone that believeth." Again, we're no longer under the power; uh, the, the the law no longer has power over us like it did. Turn to Galatians 3:13. Galatians 3:13, go to the right just a little bit in your Bible. This is an amazing book when it comes to dealing with grace versus the law. Galatians is amazing. It uh, really spells things out very clearly. But notice what it says in Galatians chapter three in verse 13. "Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us." For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. We're talking about a judgment that took place, and it took place there at, at Calvary that day. Sin was judged that day. And ultimately, your sin and mine. And in this case, He redeemed or purchased us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. We know that He bore in our, His body our sin. We understand that. And the Bible teaches us here in this case that we've been purchased by the sacrificial offering of Christ himself, and we're no longer subject to the curse of the law. Death, separation from God, that's something that we will escape as a result. Turn to 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Again, we're just noting some Bible passages that point out the results of the judgment. We know what happened on the cross, we know that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and ultimately rose again. But he died that day in our place. He took your place. He took mine. He became our substitutionary death. He ultimately paid the price for our sin. And that sin was judged on the cross that day. Jesus Christ paid that price for us and on our behalf. 1 Peter 2:24, Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness. So we died with him that day then. And now we have the ability to live a righteous life. We can overcome sin. We don't have to be bound by sin any longer because we died with Jesus Christ that day. In this particular case, we were being dead to sins. We're no longer. We now live under righteousness Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. Oh, a lot of scripture, I know. I hope you're doing well with your Bible memorization. I, um, I needed that little sheet that we worked up. Um, I'm looking forward to cutting off a couple of extra words here and there and ultimately getting to the place where I don't need any of them. I can, I can do pretty good overall. I've got probably 12 verses that I'm still working on for the end of the year that I'm still struggling with a little bit. There's about 12 of them I'm still trying to work through a little bit. And uh, the, the, the other ones I'm doing pretty good, with the exception I need a word or two to start them off, right? So we're trying to get that nailed down, you know? And so I am going to pass the test at the end of the year, you know? I want to be victorious. I want to get through my Bible in a year. I want to get through all my verses in a year, and I want to get that jacket. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of uh, is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus both made me free from the law of sin and death. Let me, let me look at this thing real quick. Hold on a second. Romans chapter 8. I want to make sure I got the right place here. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And that's something. That's amazing, really. I mean, the passage points out that we're no longer condemned. We're no longer cursed. No longer have to deal with judgment due to our sin being judged on Calvary 2,000 years ago. And again, it's as a result of the finished work of Christ. So if we want to summarize all this, if we want to summarize what transpired and took place, I feel like John chapter 5 verse 24 is a good place to go. Turn there and we'll just kind of summarize this and then we'll move ahead and explain a little bit more about this judgment and how it affected us as believers. John five twenty-four. Jesus just didn't die on the cross that day, but there was a judgment that took place, a judgment on sin and uh we're very fortunate for that that he did that on our behalf john 5:24. verily verily i say unto you he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life when talking about this condemnation again there's no judgment that we're going to face as a result of that we are passed from death unto life that's a direct result of that judgment that took place on Calvary, that sin was judged, and Jesus Christ paid the price. He finished the job, if you will. Well, what a wonderful thing it is that He paid our penalty and our sin debt, and our sin was judged on that cross that day. That means that we don't have to... We're going to recognize a little bit later on here that, again, that judgment is passed, and that's a good thing. But anyway, again... If the believer's judgment for sin is passed, then, you know what, we don't have to worry about it today. You know, and uh, it was settled at the cross that day. You say, I'm still worried about my sin. Well, you, you may be worried, and we're, we're going to note this in a little bit, you may be worried about some sins in your life, but you don't have to worry about your sin. That was addressed and dealt with on Calvary. and We'll talk about that in a little bit, but... but um, we, gotta, we can't forget that the judgment of the believer is threefold, too. First of all, as a sinner. Okay? And then as a son. And then we're going to see as a servant. Now, we've already seen that the believer's judgment as a sinner is past. And that's good news. Now, let's look at his judgment or her judgment as a, as a son in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this. As soon as a sinner accepts Christ as their personal Savior, that settles the sin question for us. That's an obvious thing. It's done. It's over with. If our iniquities are laid on him, Jesus Christ, then they're not on us, right? That's the whole point. Isaiah 53, turn there. Isaiah chapter 53. Again, if our iniquities, our sin was laid on Jesus, then they're not on us. And uh, that's, that's good news. That is the good news of the gospel. You ever think about why are people, if it's such good news, why do people get angry? about the gospel. You ever wonder about that? I mean, okay, it's supposed to be good news. Then I thought everybody liked good news. Then how's come some folks don't like the good news? Can I tell you why? Because with the good news, there comes a reality check. You know what the reality is? We're all sinners. Man, mankind doesn't like to face the reality of their sinfulness. It's not something that we relish in. It's not something that we like to talk about. We don't even want to admit it. We, don't want to, we want to say, listen, there's something inherently good in all of us, right? Man, mankind doesn't enjoy facing the reality that they're just sinners and wretched before a, a, in the sight of a holy God. And so we somehow try to justify our actions and we try to believe and uh, we don't want to really hear how bad we are. We want to hear how good we are and yet you've got to realize how bad you are before the gospel seems so good now in Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 it's very clear that our iniquities were laid on him but he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed now you know It's hard to imagine that. I mean, we read that, and and it goes about here to here, and a lot of times right out the door. we got to understand what that's that's implying. I mean, think about what he's saying. He was wounded for our transgressions. Now, I think about a wound. I, I think about something like a knife getting stuck in somebody's stomach. I think about a bullet going through somebody's body, a wound. I want you to think about the price. I want you to think about what Jesus Christ took on himself. He says he was wounded for our transgressions. Every pain, every sorrow, every hurt, every heartache, so to speak, that we deserve because of our sin, he literally took in his own body. He was wounded. He was bruised for our iniquities. I had a grandma who, I mean, if you just grabbed her arm too tight, her arm just bruised right up. Man, I mean, them bruises looked nasty. It was bad. Jesus was bruised for our iniquities. Now He didn't bruise like grandma did, so they had to whoop him and beat him really bad. I just want you to understand how this works again. I mean, our iniquities are laid on him, therefore they're not on us, but there was a price to pay. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And it says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Again, it's so important to recognize this reality because our salvation is something that is bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. It's not something that you and I have to navigate or negotiate on a regular basis. Jesus Christ is, those iniquities were laid on Him. And since they're on Him, they're not on us. Man, that's a blessing. Now, it's extremely wise when we dig into Scripture to note the seemingly insignificant things. I mean, There's a lot of little details in the Bible that sometimes are overlooked, right? It happens. We're all guilty of that. But it's important that we try to take time to note some of those Intra, uh, those, those, those little things, I guess. Let me just say it that way. So I want to consider one of those. For instance, sin versus sins. There's a difference in the Bible. There are two different things. Sin versus sins, plural. Now, Christ died on the cross to atone for sin to pay the penalty of Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. When Adam disobeyed God, a plan was put into motion. And the sin that was now inherent in Adam, being passed down to his offspring, and ultimately even to our generation and age, that every person born is a sinner because of the sin of Adam, that is the sin that Jesus Christ died for on Calvary. Sin, therefore, is the tendency in mankind to do wrong. We often call it natural depravity. You ever heard somebody talk about, oh, they're deprived, depravity. Well, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about that atomic nature, that sin nature. You don't get rid of that tendency by the new birth. It's still there. Instead, we get this kind uh, kind of offset. We get a counteracting force if you will it's called the new nature we become if you want to, you want to put it this way we're, we're all kind of dual personalities composed of the old and the new nature and that explains the warfare that took place in the apostle Paul's life not long after he trusted Jesus as a savior look at Romans chapter 7 This passage comes up often. And sometimes I'm afraid that some people use it as an excuse to sin. But Paul the Apostle never intended that to be the case at all. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Again, that sin was addressed and dealt with on Calvary. It's the tendency in in us to do wrong. It's that atomic nature. It's that natural depravity that we're born with. And that's addressed and dealt with. But hold on. Unfortunately now, there's, we have the new nature. And, and not unfortunately, it's good we have the new nature. But unfortunately, there's going to be a battle now. Look what happens in Romans 7, 18 and 19. Paul the Apostle speaking says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Listen, do you you hear the battle in his heart? You see what he's addressing, what he's dealing with here? This is what the believer goes through. The moment we come to Jesus Christ, our sin has been addressed and dealt with. that, That old nature... If you will, still kind of hanging around, raising its ugly head up. And we now have a divine nature, and there's a battle that's transpiring and taking place now. And Paul the Apostle is pointing that out. And he's saying, There's nothing good in this old flesh of mine. But man, I'm telling you what, the things I want to do, I'm struggling to do. I'm having a hard time. Getting those done. Before I was saved, I didn't worry about those things. I just did what I did. Now that Christ is real in my life, now that he has taken residency in my heart, now that he's on the throne of my life, wow, I have these new desires. And I want to do the right thing, but that old flesh keeps dragging me back. And I got to battle and fight all the time. Ultimately, he says in verse 24 of that same chapter, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now I'm going to tell you, Paul didn't write those passages there so that we could say, well, there you go, we're just human, that's what we do, we sin. That's not the point. He's trying to express to us and help us to understand that there is going to be a constant battle raging within our heart and in our lives as a result of these two natures that now seem to be at opposition With one another. And not only seemingly, they are. And that it's not about whether or not, well, I'm a human, so therefore. No, it's about I'm not going to concede. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to let the Spirit guide me and not the flesh now. I'm going to yield to the Spirit and not the flesh now. And he just says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever thought that yourself? Have you ever thought, oh, Lord, when will this battle be over? I'm sick of fighting this battle. It drives me crazy. I think I'm getting a little ahead in the game, and next thing I know, I feel like I took two steps backwards. He goes on to say, verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So Paul's not giving us a, 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 you know, an out. He's not telling us that, well, sin's just normal. No, what he's saying is, you're going to have to make a conscious decision. You're going to serve God through the mind or through the flesh? Through the heart or the flesh? You're going to give into the spirit or the flesh? That's up to you. That's up to me. That is the decision we make. And every true believer then has two natures, if you will. That old nature, that Adamic nature... A nature which they were born with, you can't, it can't do anything right. Nothing right. That's why the Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 3, it says, it says um, Boy, I tell you what, my memory verses are all starting to pile up, aren't they? This isn't one of those. This is one of the ones I had memorized before. Let me see. Uh, um, oh, man, I'm going to mess it up. I'm turning right to it real quick because I'm close. Here I am. Let me just sing it. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way, they're together become unprofitable, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. You say, there's nobody that does good? Nope. Right, right. Not compared to God who's holy and perfect. Yeah. We fall miserably short, right? For the wages, of, the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all fallen miserably short to his perfect holy standard. And his standard is represented in Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless, perfect life. Anything less than perfection is sin. And again, it's not talking about that there aren't people that do nice things as far as in the world it's concerned. But in essence, when compared to God, when God views mankind, There's nothing that we do good in this old flesh because this flesh, no good thing dwelleth in it, Paul said. Romans 7, 18 says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. We already saw that. But he also has a new nature. And that's what he's talking about in Romans 7, that there's that old, but then there's that new, the nature of God in him. And that nature can do nothing wrong. As unable... As the flesh is to do anything right, that new nature isn't unable to do anything wrong. Turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Again, you say, well, you know, earlier you said that we're like dual personalities. Well, here it is. Opposite ends of the spectrum. Look what it says in 1 John 3:9. Whosoever and, and this is interesting, too, because I, you know, there's a real tough balance here that we have, to be, we have to be very, very careful here because we could go crazy with this verse right here and and, and come up with all kind of nutty, nutty doctrines and, and crazy things. But there's balance in this. I'll, I'll show you that balance in, in just a second. I'm trying to turn to it while I'm wasting time talking. But Look what it says in 1 John 3, 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in it. And he cannot sin because he's born of God. That's not talking about this old flesh. It's talking about that new man. That new man don't sin. If there's any sin in my life, it isn't the one Jesus... It's not Jesus in me, it's me, my flesh. But hold on, there's always balance in the Bible, and we have to be careful we understand that balance. He says, verse 10 of chapter 1 of the same book, 1 John, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So again, there's got to be a distinction being made here then. That divine nature, that new man that was put in us the moment... That sin was judged on Calvary, and we received and accepted Christ that day. Man, and we no longer are under condemnation, but we also have the divine nature. We have a new man in us. That new man doesn't sin at all. And Paul the Apostle in chapter 7 is talking about that new man versus that old man. And he's saying, listen, it is a constant struggle and a continual battle. So these two natures are in constant conflict. They're incompatible. They're irreconcilable. In Galatians 5:17, the Bible says, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another, so that you cannot do the things that you would. There it is again. Paul the Apostle, back in Romans 7, experienced that early on, I'm sure, in his Christian life. He had to learn how to deal with it. He had to understand that the battle was real and how to overcome it and get victory. I think we're reading about an experience in the Apostle Paul's life early on, not later on in his life, but more early on. And now in Galatians, he's writing to the church, and he's telling them exactly what he's learned along the way, what he understands to be truth, and what God has revealed to him by revelation. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other. They're at odds with one another. So that you cannot do the things that you would. Man, you try to do some things in your strength, your ability, my ability, my strength, we're doomed. We're going to fail miserably. Can't do it on our own. So whether the old or new nature dominates really depends on which one we feed versus which one we starve. Again, I've shared uh, something like this a number of times through the years, but Let's suppose you had two dogs. They were equal size. They were equal kind. And the two dogs get to fighting with one another. And at some point during the fight, you know, you go in and you try to break it up. But let me tell you, that's a scary thing. Be careful when you try to break up dogs fighting. You might get kind of taken You know, and that hurt you a little bit. So you separate those dogs. And the one dog, uh, you, you uh, man, I mean to tell you, you, you just take it and you just thrust it on into a cage and lock it in. The other one, you bind its wounds and you feed it food and give it plenty of water. You leave them there overnight, and the next day you open the cages, and boy, they just seem to go right back at it again. And after a while, you finally, you you separate those dogs again, you take that old dog again, you say, listen, get out of here. You throw it on in that cage, you lock it up, and you just leave it overnight. The other one, man, you bind its wounds up again, you take care of it, you feed it, you give it water. The next day you open the cage up and those dogs go at it again. Let me ask you something. Which dog's going to eventually win that fight? The one we're feeding. The one we're watering. The one we're caring for. You want to know something? That is a perfect picture of the Christian and the flesh versus the spirit. The old versus the new. And the truth is, is that the one that's going to win in your life is the one that you care for, that you feed, that you take care of. You bind up those wounds and you feed it and you water it and boy, you take good care of it. That's the one that will win. I don't care if it's the flesh in a Christian or if it's the spirit. Either one, whichever one you feed, is the one that's going to win. that warfare will continue until that old nature is eradicated. You know when that happens? It's death. Now, sins on the other hand, not sin, S-I-N, but sins, S-I-N-S, are the outward acts of wrongdoing that we commit as the result of the tendency of sin. It's those things that we do along the way because we do have a sin nature. We have that nature. We have now the new man, and God has talks about that old man being crucified, yes, but we have sin that was dealt with at Calvary. We now have sins that need to be dealt with daily, and they're dealt with daily through confession. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Look if you would in 1 John 1, 9. I think we might be over that way, so take a look at it. 1 John 1, 9. You know the verse, some of you may know it by heart. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, that's that's a dying daily. That's a, a... Put away our sins daily by confession. Now, our judgment as sons is for confessed, uh, is for actually unconfessed sins. That's why we're judged once we become children of God. Why why would we be judged at all? We're not going to be judged because of our sin, that's been addressed and dealt with. But God's going to take care of the issues that we have with our sins now that we're His children. And he calls it chastisement. It's called chastisement. Turn if you to Hebrews 12, verse 6. Now, however unpleasant this process may be, and it is at times, it's one of the greatest evidences that we are indeed the sons of God. Because, see, God only chastens His own. It's the only ones He'll chase are His own. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter six, uh, 12, verse six through eight. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. We'll start that again. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, Whereof all are partakers, then you're bastards and not sons. You understand what he's saying there. You're either in or you're out. You're either a child of God or you're not. If you're a child of God, guess what? You're going to be chastened. It's that simple. There's no question about it. If you fail to comply or to yield to the Lord at some point, God is obligated to chasten us. And he chastens his own. That's a wonderful proof that we're his children. You say, man, I'm trying to do things the way I want to do it. I'm trying to go my own direction, but God is whooping me, man. Well, good for you. That's proof positive you're his child, then that's a good proof. Hold on. What are you going to do about it, though? (laughs) You're going to just say, keep bringing it on, Lord. No, that's not good business either. We learn later on in the passages that we keep going the wrong direction. God just may choose to take us out sooner than later. We don't talk about that much. We don't preach about that much because we know God's just a God of love today. But that's a biblical God we're reading about now, a God that chastens his children. Hold on. Here, I have a question for you then. If we fail to correct and chasten our children, what does that say? Now, I want to read something because I think it's important. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Hold on. Proverbs 13, 24 is a very misunderstood and misquoted passage in Scripture. Here's what it says in Proverbs 13, 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes." Do you you know what we often say? We say things like, spare the rod, spoil the child. Now, I'm not going to argue that sparing the rod will ultimately spoil a child to some degree. Yes. But that's not what the Bible's teaching us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, the Bible says, for whom the Lord loveth, who he loveth, who he loveth, he chasteneth. He spanks. And he even goes on to say he scourges, which is a physical punishment. Hold on. He that spareth his rod hateth his child then. Because the next phrase says exactly what Hebrews 12, 6 says, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. times. Love always It understands the need for chastening. It doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that it comes easy. A parent that has to chasten their children often finds it extremely difficult to do so because they hate to see their children suffering or hurting. However, the Bible's very clear here about chastening. So if we fail to correct or chasten our children, what does that say about us and our relationship to them? Wow, that's scary. And we look at a society and a culture today who has literally said God's way of disciplining or chastening children is wrong. I don't believe people would consciously say I do not love my child. Matter of fact, they'd say the opposite. But remember, biblical love and what the world defines as love are often two different things. Biblical love is an action verb. It demands action, and it must act as God defines it. I just want to encourage you parents not to give in to the world when it comes to these areas. I know some would say, well, it could get dangerous because you hear about that. They could haul you off to jail. Do you love your children? If you love your children according to the Word of God, you must discipline the way God outlines in Scripture. If you truly want to honor God, this is not about whether your way works or it doesn't. It's about God's way. We do things God's way because we are his children. When my children were in my home, they did it the way I wanted it done because that's how it works. I'm dad and we are God's children. We do things his way, whether we understand it or not. You know what? His way is the best way. So he chastens us too. And it's not always pleasant. But in light of that chastening, we have to close now, but in light of the chastening hand of God in our lives, how important is it then that we do what the writer of Hebrews tells us? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now, we have a God that loves us enough to chasten us. That's an interesting thing. He loves us enough to chasten us. To correct us, even if it means hurting us on the onset. You say, I don't think that's what he was getting at. Well, you read the whole chapter and tell me what you think. Because he says, chastening for the present doesn't seem very, it's not very pleasant. Well, if it's not pleasant, that means it hurts a little bit. I'm telling you. With that in mind, though, as believers, we probably ought to heed the warning of the, book, the writer of Hebrews. We ought to commit to it. Look at Hebrews 12.1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. We have a God that cares enough to chasten us. That's not, that. listen, honestly, this is interesting because somebody in the crowd, or possibly somebody listening online, is going, There you go again, you stupid Baptists. All you care about is the outward. All you care about is your rules and your regulations, your
0: standards.
1: No, that's not what this is about. Do you realize that when my kids got a little older, I didn't have to spank them all the time? Do you realize? If you do this right, the way God said to do it, remember I told you that chapter 7 of the book of Romans, I believe Paul was a young Christian at that point, and he's trying to figure this thing out. Let me tell you something. Paul recognized also that something's going on, because I'm pretty convinced that Paul was the writer of Hebrews. I may be wrong. But he understands, I believe, that this chastening is a very important part of a Christian's life, especially early on, because he brings us back into the fold. He says, listen, you're straying, I'm bringing you back, but here's the thing. I found that with my children, when I corrected them early on in their lives, and I was consistent, daily consistent, always consistent, never up and down, always the same, pretty soon I didn't have to chase them anymore. Didn't have to spank them, didn't have to punish them. Pretty soon, you know what I found happened? They didn't want to disappoint me. They didn't want to hurt Dad anymore. It wasn't that they were afraid of getting a spanking. They were afraid of breaking my heart. And every child ought to transition from being fearful of the rod as a little child, ultimately to coming to the place where they fear hurting Mom and Dad and breaking their heart. And that's how God intended it. You mean to tell me that the only reason you do what God tells you to do now after 20 years of being a Christian is because you're afraid of getting spanked by God? You mean that it doesn't break your heart to think about hurting Him when you sin against Him? You mean that's not the main motivation? Because if it isn't, then you've never grown in your Christian walk. And if that's the case, you probably do need to follow someone else's standards because you probably don't have any of your own because you've never learned to do what God said to do to begin with. My children did what I did. Then they get out on their own and they do what they do. Whether they do exactly like I did or not, that's on them. But the fact is, is that I believe there's a transition period that takes place. I've watched it happen, not only in my own, but in the lives of other children. And boy, they go from being fearful of the rod to ultimately being fearful of hurting and harming mom and dad, breaking their hearts. And that's what the child of God does. Finally comes to the place where it says, I don't want to hurt Jesus after everything he's done for me. How in the world would I want to do that? And sometimes we fail him anyway and we go, man, I'm so sorry. We confess our sin and we say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I messed up again. And he says, all right, you confessed it, now move on. I'm not going to hold that over your head. I'm not going to beat you up. You recognize it, you understand it, you've confessed it. You've shown me that you don't want to do that anymore and you're going to do your best to turn from it. Go now and sin no more. We might end up right back there again the next day, but God's still merciful and gracious to us. But the key is, is what's our heart toward him? So I feel like we need to realize we've got to lay aside the weights and the sin which does so easily be says. Let us run the race that's set before us. So self judge, confess our sins, and then turn from them. And let's avoid that chastisement. Let's avoid hurting and harming the Heavenly Father by breaking his heart. It's a good thing. If we would judge ourselves, the Bible tells us, we should not be judged. But when we're judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned or judged with the world, if you would. That's 1 Corinthians 11, 31, 32. Let's make sure we're doing the judging of our own lives. Let's make sure that ultimately we grow to the place in our Christian life where we look at the Heavenly Father and say, I don't want to hurt him no more. I don't want to just be right so that I don't get a whooping. I want to be right so I don't cause him Anguish. I love him too much to put him through all that mess just because of my selfishness and sin. I don't want to do that no more. Father, we come to you. We just ask, Lord, you'd help us. Thank you, Father, for that first judgment, the judgment on Calvary that changes everything, Lord, that Father truly spares us condemnation that we no longer have to deal with that. It deals with us as sinners and then as sons and as we're going to see even next week as servants, Father, help us, Lord, to be found faithful to you now, Lord. We need you. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand, every head about, every